Good evening. And welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. My name is Vivian Fisher and I manage the African American Department. And it is my pleasure this evening to introduce to you our guest speaker, Dr. Edward J. Lawson. On behalf of our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, I would like to extend to each of you a warm welcome to the Pratt Library. So this evening we are honored to have as our guest speaker, Dr. Edward J. Lawson. He is the author of nine books and nearly 100 published articles. Dr. Lawson teaches lectures and writes about issues of law, politics, science, and medicine from an historical perspective. Also, he is the co-author or co-editor of six additional books, including the Constitutional Convention, a narrative history from the notes of James Madison. He is also the recipient of many, many awards for excellence in teaching. In 1988, he won a Pulitzer Prize for history, and he is a Fulbright Scholar. This evening, Dr. Lawson will discuss his latest work, The Return of George Washington. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lawson to the City of Baltimore and the Pratt Library. Well, thank you for that kind of invitation, and I've had the pleasure of speaking to some of you after I got here today. It's been nice to talk to all of you. I hope I'll get a chance to talk um, to you more. Now, I could, this new book that came out a couple weeks ago that I had, The Return of George Washington, I could have just done a reading uh, every time he passed through Baltimore during that period, because what the book does is deal with the period of Washington's life that is pretty well ignored. I know everybody says, including the reviews in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal said, we didn't think anything new could be said about George Washington. Maybe said better, but not new. But here, here was a whole period, the period after he steps down as general and before he becomes president, that pretty well gets ignored in the literature that focuses more on his as general or as a young man or as, as a president. Um, so as I say, I could just, and he was passing through Baltimore, it seems like all the time, greeted um, quite... Um, um, Received wonderful greetings. Uh, he had many very close friends here, as you know. Um, he'd sometimes stay in McHenry's house or in other people's houses when he was here. And so Baltimore comes often. But that's not what I thought I'd do. I talked with him. And I thought instead of just doing a reading, I'd sort of pull together pieces to tell a little bit of a, of a separate story. There are lots of stories within the book. Washington does lots of exciting things during this period, including being a farmer, which everyone knows about, but other activities, trips to the West, but I want to just focus on a different angle of this because um, I think it's timely. Um, this is a period, we seem to be living in a period where there are lots of revolutions. And popular revolutions take many forms, some violent and some peaceful. Uh, they are marked by a fundamental transition of governing authority, typically from below. Uh, now, it's, it's conventional to characterize the American Revolution of 1776 to 83 as the first modern popular revolution. And the French's, French's Revolution, starting in 1789, is the second. Russia had a particularly cataclysmic revolt in 1917, and China finished one in 1949. In the recent years, we seem to see revolutions all the time. First, the whole series of them in, West, in Eastern Europe, in the 1980s, and now the more recently the so-called Arab Spring of the early 2010s, with its still unfinished upheavals in Tunisia, Libya, and Syria. Now, 
One, this is the point of this. We are reminded by these results. In particular, you can just focus on the results in Russia, Russia, Libya, and many of the others, that popular revolutions don't always end well. We tend to think of, that, think of them that way because we think of our own, and we think our own ended well. Well, it did after a time. But some of these revolutions, as in Russia, lead to tyrannies that are, that are certainly as bad, maybe worse, than the tyrannies that preceded the revolution. Others descend into prolonged domestic chaos, as, as happened in France with its reign of terror, and now appears likely in Libya. What I want to talk about tonight is to note that without George Washington, and others around him, but without George Washington, either result might have happened here. The former, if he had not retired following our violent first revolution, and the later, if he had not reemerged in 1787 for what some historians depict as our peaceful second revolution. So let me just explain and deal with that rather than talk about all the different things of the book, which the book is sort of a biography for 10 years. Now, remember, Washington stepped down after the revolution and left the country's political future to others. Extolled by later historians as the signal event that set our country's political course, this act was similarly praised at the time. Citing examples from Julius Caesar to Oliver Cromwell, British propagandists during the war had scoffed at Americans for rebelling against one King George, King George III, only to inevitably gain another in George Washington. Successful rebel leaders inevitably become tyrants, they charge. Indeed, when expatriate American painter Benjamin West, then in England, predicted at a time he was having an audience with King George, um, to paint him, uh, he predicted, when asked, that Washington re- would retire on the cessation of hostilities. A skeptical King George III replied, "Well, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world." And when he did so, American ambassador in Paris, Thomas Jefferson, commented that the moderation and virtue of a single character probably prevented this revolution from being closed as most others have been, by a subversion of that liberty it was intended to establish. Think of what would happen with Napoleon just a few years later. Well, this story is well known, the story of the Cincinnatius. So let me focus on the other half of this balancing act. In response to questions, I'd happily talk about the first part, because I cover that in my book. But the second part is Washington's role in forming a more perfect union through a second revolutionary intervention. Now, when he retired after the war, Washington hoped for an energetic republic to unite the coastal states and the vast western territories all the way to the Mississippi that had been ceded by Britain under the treaty recognizing American independence. He said as much in his pre-retirement circular letter to the states, which he issued in response to the Confederation's inability to pay its troops and creditors in 1783. A post-retirement trip to inspect his frontier properties in the Ohio Valley in 1784 showed him the tenuous nature of America's hold on the West and reinforced his conviction that the Articles of Confederation then looping the 13 sovereign states into a loose alliance that lacked the power to tax or command individuals must be revised to give the central government 
direct control over interstate commerce, foreign affairs, national defense, and taxing and spending to the general, for the general welfare. To him, this was essential to promote liberty, to protect property, and to preserve independence. The subsequent breakdown of public order in some states, the reckless emission of paper money by others, and the worsening of economic conditions everywhere deepened his fears and those of like-minded Americans. The country was drifting toward the chaos characteristic of popular revolutions where effective new regimes failed to emerge after the fall of repressive old ones. Now, to illustrate this, I could draw on Washington's letters to any number of people. There are literally hundreds of letters that exist expressing Washington's concern and those of other like-minded people around the country. Remember, under the Articles of Confederation, there virtually was no central government. There simply was. There was no president. There was no um, um, court system. There was a, there was a it was alliance. It was a, considered an alliance of friendship. And every state could send any amount of delegates they wanted to the Central Congress, but those delegates served at the will of their states, could be recalled at any time, could be instructed how they voted, and were paid by their states. It was akin to the situation at the United Nations, and that central government had no power to tax or to order anyone to do anything at all. Um, as I said, Washington talks about this concerns with many people, but let me just pick a few of his letters back and forth with the Confederation's brilliant but beleaguered foreign secretary, John Jay. Early in 1786, Jay urged Washington to emerge from retirement long enough to lead an effort for constitutional reform. Jay wrote to Washington, Experience has pointed out errors in our national government which threatened to blast the fruit we expected from our tree of liberty. Washington wrote back, I coincide perfectly with your sentiments, but my fear is that people are not yet sufficiently misled to retract from error. Washington blamed the situation on ignorance among the people regarding the dangers to freedom and property from the excesses of democracy that was happening in certain states and the wickedness of some of those state leaders who took, tried to take advantage of that situation. Washington wrote, ignorance and design are difficult to combat that it is necessary to revise and amend the Articles of Confederation, I entertain no doubt. But what may be the consequences of such an attempt is doubtful. Virtue, I fear, has, in a great degree, taken its departure from the land. Well, let me, let me elaborate on the situation that was developing. The anxiety for constitutional reform reflected in this exchange and in other letters written by Washington during this period betrayed far more fundamental concerns then Mears fears of losing the West, though that was a concern because the British had never evacuated the forts in the old Northwest and Spain was conspiring in the Southwest. Vermont was actively conspiring with Britain to leave the Union altogether and join Canada. So that was a worry. There were, they were certainly concerned. They had hopes for a national market economy if you united the states so you could get rid of tariff barriers between the states and open up the streets for trading. You could have a national market economy, and that was wanted. There was also a desire to repay government creditors. The troops hadn't been paid, you know, the army hadn't been paid for three years before the end of the war and sent home without any pay. The creditors hadn't been paid for their loans to the government. 
because the federal government didn't have any money because it couldn't raise taxes, didn't have the power to raise taxes. It could just go hat in hand to the states asking for money, and they usually got very little. Um, in fact, during the last three years of the Confederation, um, they would ask for money, and they'd say, your share is so much, and during those three years, they ended up actually getting $636, um, which was almost as little then as it is now. Um, and those issues all weighed heavily on both men, but when you read their letters, their letters speak in terms of calamity and commotion, loss of public virtue and a disposition to do justice, the breakdown of the social fabric under the excesses of majority faction, much like the problems we see where popular revolutions fail to spawn balanced representative governments. Liberty itself was at risk, Washington wrote, much as it had been in 1776, but this time it came the threat came from within. Nothing short of a revolution in government was needed to save the United States. By the end of 1786, with the debtors' insurrection in Massachusetts, known as Shays Rebellion, wholesale printing of devalued paper money by Rhode Island, Georgia, and some other states, the open rebellion in Vermont, Washington began to doubt if Americans were even capable of self-government. Notwithstanding the boasted virtue of America, he wrote to Bostonian Henry Knox, the Confederation Secretary of War, notwithstanding that, we are far gone in everything bad and ignoble. And so to fellow Virginian James Madison, Washington wrote in November, 13 sovereignties pulling against each other and all tugging at the federal head will soon bring ruin to the whole, whereas a liberal and energetic constitution well-guarded and well-watched to prevent encroachments, might restore us to that degree of respectability and consequence to which we had a fair claim. In short, what he's saying, a second revolution was needed to complete the first one. In March 1787, three months after the disturbances in Massachusetts, Shays' Rebellion died down, Washington wrote to Lafayette, his dear friend and uh, former aide, who was living in France, about the ongoing impact on the Shays' Rebellion on the effort for constitutional reform. Those disorders, he wrote, are evident marks of a defective government. Indeed, the thinking part of the people of this country are now so, so well satisfied of this fact that most of the legislatures have appointed delegates to meet in Philadelphia in general convention to revise and correct the defects of the federal system. By this point, Virginia had picked Washington to lead its delegation, and he was debating whether to go. His main worries were that the convention had been called merely to propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation and not to fun frame a fundamentally new government. A thorough reform of the present system is indispensable, Washington now wrote, and with hand to heart I hope the business will be assayed in full convention. Fearing that some, delegate, some states might impose limits on their delegates, Washington reiterated his hope that the convention, using his words here, writing to Lafayette, would probe the defects of the Confederation to the bottom and provide radical cures. Only on these terms would he go to the convention. Well, by this point in the process, Washington had written to Jay to Knox and to Madison, requesting their advice on a restructured government. In short, asking them, well, if I go to Philadelphia, what should the new government look like? If we're starting from scratch, 
what should we design? What should the government look like? They all wrote back, and he was struck by the similarities of their responses. And from those responses, he, in his own hand, abstracted the three responses, Jay Knox and Madison, three of the most prominent people in America, and more scholarly than him. He digested him into a single draft, which looks like the first draft of the Constitution. All of the three, and in his digest, envisioned a national government with separate legislative and judicial and executive branches. All three would divide Congress into an upper, elite upper house and a popular lower house. And all three were obsessed with reigning in the states. Madison wrote, The national government should be armed with positive and complete authority in all cases which require uniformity. This became the key feature of America's second revolution, e pluribus unium, unum, one nation out of many states. In his responses to Knox, Jay, and Madison, Washington embraced their proposal and made them his own. Those enumerated in your letter are so obvious and sensibly felt that no logic can controvert, Washington told Jay, but is the public mind ready for such an important change? Expressing similar sentiments to Knox, Washington stated his fear that, quote, the political machine will yet be much tumbled and tossed and possibly wrecked altogether before such a system as you have defined will be adopted. Jealous of power, state officials would give their weight of opposition to such a revolution. And that's Washington using that term. Nevertheless, he wrote to Jay he wished to try the convention route and find out what may be affected. It might he wrote, be the last peaceable mode of saving the Union. And should it devise a vigorous new government under his leadership, Knox wrote back to Washington that Washington would have doubly earned the glorious Republican epitaph, the father of your country. Well, make no mistake about it, Washington did not want to go. He liked living at Mount Vernon. But now he saw it as his public duty, and so he went. Americans everywhere understood this and discussed its significance. Just taking one an example, an article in the Connecticut Journal reporting that Washington had actually agreed to go, wrote, It is with particular satisfaction we inform the public that our illustrious fellow citizen George Washington has consented to serve in the ensuing federal convention. What happy consequences are not all the true friends of federal government may promise themselves. This and other popular accounts show that even before it began, Americans expected revolutionary change from the convention. Indeed, Washington was greeted in Philadelphia with an essay in one local newspaper declaring, quote, the more we abridge the states of their sovereignty, the more supreme power we concentrate in the assembly of the states, the more safety, liberty, and prosperity will be enjoined by all. Now, reflecting his commitment to serve, Washington was one of the few delegates to arrive in Philadelphia on time. Nobody from Maryland made it on time. He duly went to the State House at the appointed hour on March on May 14 to find only Madison and the Pennsylvanians present, no one else. They returned daily at noon as, as the other Delegates trickled in, but it took 10 days to obtain a quorum. In the meantime, meeting privately, the Virginians present 
and apparently the Pennsylvanians cobbled together an outline for the new plan of government based on Washington's draft. It became known as the Virginia Plan because Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph offered it at the convention. Now, little is known about those meetings, but letters from those present suggest that Washington attended every session and supported the outcome. As one Virginia depicted the still-forming plan, nothing less than a revolution in government was brewing. The most prevalent idea, this letter noted, seems to be a total alternation of the present federal system and substituting a great national council with full legislative powers upon all objects of the union. This sentence effectively summarizes the Virginia plan. People would replace states as the building block of of a national republic. And on matters of national interest, Congress would either dictate to the states or deal directly with the people. When the convention did obtain a quorum, it promptly chose Washington as its president and turned to the matter of rules. Those rules provided that so long as it was represented, each state would get one vote. A majority of states represented uh, at any particular time could carry a vote, so that if there were eight states there, five could carry the vote. And secrecy, and this was the most important one, secrecy would obtain throughout. That is, from the entire meetings. With windows shuttered and doors closed, the members met day after day, six days a week, for over three months. Delegates came and went. They, once they got there, they didn't all stay. They would come and go. States gained and lost representation. New Hampshire, for example, did not appear to late July, by which time New York had stormed out altogether and was not again represented. Rhode Island never participated at all. Of all the delegates, only Washington and Madison attended every session. With secrecy enforced, the only record of the proceedings came in Madison's private notes of the debate, which he carefully took, an official tally of motions and votes, and a scattering of personal writings, letters, and the such. This limits what we know about what Washington's role, because as the presiding officer, he didn't actually speak on substantive matters in the hall where Madison recorded the debate. It's just like the Speaker of the House never speaks during the debate. But that doesn't mean that John Boehner has no power. It just means he doesn't speak in the debate. But we all know John Boehner runs what happens in the House of Representatives, at least in some sort of a coalition with his members. And that's how it really was with Washington as well. The other members certainly knew where he stood on significant matters. He had spoken out often about his desire to create a national government with the powers to tax, the powers to maintain an army, and to regulate interstate and international commerce. Beyond that, You have to piece together the pieces to see what Washington wanted and what Washington did. But we have a lot of clues to do that, especially in his particular vote within the Virginia delegation because he was voting on measures. And to a great extent, those votes are recorded. Now, Virginia only gets one vote, but all the delegates in Virginia get to vote, and it's the majority of that delegation is how Virginia votes. And Washington becomes particularly critical because when George Wyeth's wife um, is near death, 
he leaves to be with her at her death, and that leaves five members of the delegation. Two of them had turned against the Constitution, and in the end, it's Washington's vote in Virginia that is the only reason Virginia voted for the Constitution in Philadelphia. It was split 3-2, and his vote was the decisive vote. But that's getting to the end. We'll go back um, to the beginning. One day after the convention committed itself to secrecy, the Virginia delegation dropped its bombshell. Having participated in preparing it, Washington clearly conspired in the timing of its delivery. To begin the main business of the convention, as Madison puts it in his notes, Washington called on Randolph. The Virginia governor then presented his delegation's plan for a new constitution. As presented by Randolph, the plan contained the outlines for a national, that's the term it uses, a national government. It doesn't say federal, it says national. Composed of a two-house legislature, some sort of chief executive, and a judiciary with supreme and inferior courts. Citing the discord among the states, the rebellion in Massachusetts, the havoc of paper money, as he calls it, and 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 the government's failure to pay its debts, Washington argued that the old confederation did not work and raised, and these are his words, raised the prospect of anarchy from the laxity of government everywhere. The hope, he said, lay in a national government with the power to legislate on matters of general concern and compel obedience. One skeptical delegate writing to his son captured the speech's essence in a scribble. It notes, sovereignty is the integral thing. We ought to be one nation. While Virginia had staked its ground, forcing others to respond, no delegate could doubt where Washington stood. He remained the, a voting member of Virginia's delegation, called on Randolph to speak first, and never suffered any interruption of what one critic called the governor's long and tedious speech. Clearly, Washington sided with Virginia and its plan. In doing so, he helped to hijack the convention. Congress had endorsed this gathering as a meeting to draft amendments to the Confederation. Washington's Virginia instead proposed using it to scrap the existing government and to form a nation. That night... He, he likely worked on a long letter. This is the same, the night after Randolph gave his great speech. Washington worked on a letter that he mailed the next day to Jefferson. In that letter, that long letter, Jeff Washington writes, the business of this convention is as yet too much in embryo to form an opinion of the results. Yet something is necessary. All will agree. While the situation of the general government, paren, if it can be even called a government, is shaken to its foundation and liable to be overset at every blast. In a word, it, referring to the Confederation, it is at an end. And unless a remedy is soon applied, anarchy and confusion will inevitably ensue. Well, after heating debate, and so that's Washington's words on the day of Randolph's speech. After heatedly debating and narrowly defeating a motion to limit the proceedings to amend the Articles of Confederation, a motion that was made by New Jersey, the convention accepted the Virginia plan as a starting point for its deliberations and never looked back. Washington sat silent in the hall, orchestrating proceedings, but surely he spoke in private. Persuaded I am that the primary cause of all our disorders lie in the different states, he soon wrote privately, and in the tenacity of that power which pervades the holes of their system. 
So long as the states retained their independent sovereignty, he predicted, the country would falter. The initial battle won. The war then raged over the precise structure and powers of Congress, the nature of the executive, the protections for state-sanctioned slavery, and myriad other matters. Washington again remained quiet in the hall, but wrote privately, the men who opposes a strong and energetic central government are the men who oppose a strong and energetic national central government are, in my opinion, narrow-minded politicians or under the influence of local views. Of all the delegates, it was Alexander Hamilton and James Wilson, two pro-business nationalists with very close ties to Washington, who most vocally defended an open-ended granting of power to the central government. On June 18, for example, after New Jersey proposed a limited list of powers in its alternative plan for a federal government, Hamilton exploded. The general power must swallow up the state powers, otherwise it will be swallowed up by them, he declared. Wilson was more discreet. Distancing himself from Hamilton's extreme remarks, he still argued that, quote, the state should only survive as lesser jurisdictions or subdivisions of the state. Well, from start to finish, Washington presided at the convention without expressing his views on the proper extent of the central government's power. He didn't need to. Ever since the 1783 circular letter to the states, which was then the country's best-known public document other than the Declaration of Independence, Washington stood as the personification of nationalism in the United States. His daily presence on the dais spoke louder than the speeches of anyone in the hall. It gave weight to the Virginia plan, which implicitly bore his imprimatur. And when Randolph drafted a broad enumeration of congressional powers that the Virginia delegation backed, it included every single one that Washington had publicly endorsed. Vain it is to look for respect from abroad or tranquility at home, Washington wrote one day before the delegates approved Randolph's list of enumerated powers till the wisdom and force of this union can be more effectively concentrated. Well, evidence abounds for Washington's influence on shaping the various provisions of the Constitution and for securing the compromises that kept the convention on track. But his role on crafting the executive branch offers as good an example as any of the part he played in specific provisions as opposed to the big idea of national power. Since everyone in the hall presumed that Washington would become the first president, no one could even conceive of that position without thinking of him in it. Indeed, within a year, South Carolina's Pierce Butler flatly stated that his colleagues at the convention, quote, shaped their ideas of the, and powers to be given to the president by their opinions of Washington's virtue. Delegates debated, when you look at the debates of the convention, delegates ended up debating the executive at length three separate times during the convention. In reality, it was the most novel thing they created. Other countries had parliaments. States had, states had two-house legislatures. Judiciaries were known. But there was nothing like the American presidency anywhere in the world. There were monarchs. There was nothing like it. In June, during the first of the occasions, the delegates raised virtually all the issues about the presidency that would later occupy them as they kept returning to it. But they had trouble then even resolving whether one person or a committee would hold the office. With Washington in the room, a unitary executive should have seemed obvious to all, especially since every state only had one governor. Fearful of investing too much power in any single person, however, some delegates, including two from Virginia, 
favored an executive triumvirate like those of late Republican Rome to prevent a monarchy, as it were. Denouncing the single executive as, quote, the fetus of monarchy, Randolph averred that the people would oppose it. Further, George Mason, another Virginian, added an executive troika could better represent the country's three regions, one from the north, one from the middle, and one from the south. These comments on a single executive, coming as they did from old friends, surely vexed Washington, you can see that in his letters, who prided himself on his Republican virtue, public support, and unbiased nationalism. Every delegate who knew him well must have understood that Washington would never consent to serve as one member of an executive triumvirate, nor would he be suited for such a post. While he remained silent in the hall, others rallied to defend the sort of unitary executive that Washington was so clearly qualified to fill. Unity in the executive promotes dispatch and vigor in office, James Wilson noted, and by fixing responsibility on one person serves as the, quote, best safeguard against tyranny. Elderbridge Jerry of Massachusetts added that a troca would be especially troublesome in war. It would be a general with three heads, he declared. Now, while these positions came out in the course of the formal debate, delegates discussed them on other occasions as well. And that's where Washington comes in. Now, while most delegates lodged in inns or boarding houses in Philadelphia crowded together, Washington lived in Robert Morris's elegant manner, which many thought the finest house in Philadelphia, if not the New World where he could dine in comfort daily. But he often ate out with the delegates. Indeed, on June 2nd, the very day that what I was quoting from about the fetus of monarchy, the very day that the extent of agreement, disagreement over the power and structure of the executive first became apparent, Washington, instead of dining in at Morris's home, chose to eat with the other delegates at City Tavern where the subject of the day's heated debate likely came up and surely remained on everybody's mind. While in session earlier that day, the members raised and could not resolve whether the United States should have one executive or three. Now, later in that same day, as many of those delegates dined with the man who would be that king, Washington's presence must have reassured them. As a frequent guest at City Tavern, Pierce Butler may have been present. If so, it might explain his later comment that the powers vested in the executive would not have been so great had not many of the members cast their eyes toward General Washington as president. At the convention's very next session, the very next time they met, after they had stormed out without any decision, the states voted by a margin of 7-3 to for a single executive and never revisited the issue. Then, and on every other recorded occasion, Washington voted for a stronger executive. So it went for week after week as Washington successfully guided the convention to its historic, historic conclusion in September, when all the remaining states voted for the Constitution, even though some delegates objected to parts of it. The convention then proved a cover letter signed only by Washington for transmitting the finished draft to Congress. 
The friends of our country have long seen and desired that the power of making war, peace, and treaties, that of levying money and regulating commerce, and the corresponding executive and judicial authorities should be fully and effectively vested in the general government, the letter states. These factors, it claimed, justified the consolidation of our union in which is involved our prosperity, our safety, and perhaps our very national existence. Exactly what Washington had been saying for three years. This letter opened the public campaign for ratification. It was printed in virtually every newspaper in the state. The accompanying resolutions asked Congress to forward the Constitution for the states for ratification, with nine of them required to launch the new union. Washington's signature on this cover letter and the resolutions made it look to everybody in America as if the Constitution came from him. One day after the delegates signed the Constitution, Washington left for his beloved Mount Vernon, ostensibly to let the people work their will. Indeed, on that very day, he vowed not to say anything for or against ratification in public. Yet two days after reaching home, he sent copies of the Constitution to three former Virginia governors, along with identical letters urging them to support it. I sincerely believe it is the best that could be obtained at the time, Washington wrote. If nothing had been agreed, anarchy would surely have ensued. With two of Virginia's delegates having refused to sign the document and state leaders lining up behind them, Washington feared that the Constitution would face strong headwinds in the Old Dominion. As much as he genuinely wanted to live quietly on his plantation and sincerely eschewed partisan political politics, Washington had so much time and reputation invested in the Constitution and believed so strongly that his country could not survive without it that its progress toward ratification consumed him even as he resumed day-to-day management of his plantation. Like most Federalists, he was convinced that the choice lay between the Constitution and chaos. The preservation of liberty and private property required ratification and ratification required him. Early reports from every state sounded much the same. Federalists would rely on the public's trust in Washington, the man who had voluntarily relinquished power once, to carry the day. Washington knew that the role knew the role his name and his reputation were playing in the campaign for ratification. He received and read newspapers from around the country daily and followed the unfolding drama in them and through letters. Those reports carried endless references to his central role at the convention. Yet, most people likely cared less that he had signed the Constitution than that he would lead the government under it. What will tend more than anything to the adoption of the new system, Connecticut's David Humphreys wrote to Washington, will be the universal opinion of your being elected president. No doubt Washington saw it coming in, and while uh, never coveting the position, also never denied that he would accept it. Pennsylvania's Governor Morris warned about the Constitution's prospects. Should the idea prevail that you would not accept the presidency, it would prove it would prove fatal here and in most places. By silence, Washington played his part. Even with him in their camp, however, Federalists faced the dawning task of securing ratification for their revolutionary shift of powers from the states 
to the central government. Now, the Federalists did have the advantage of a document designed to address the grave economic and political problems then facing the country and influential supporters returning from the convention to each state pushing for ratification. But led at first by dissenting delegates and soon joined by New York Governor George Clinton and Virginia Orator Patrick Henry and others, Federalists were organ- anti-Federalists were organizing, organizing to stop ratification. Whether he liked it or not, this partisan clash drew in Washington. As opposition to the Constitution emerged, Washington enlisted supporters to defend it, asking many of them to openly campaign, write essays and letters for ratification. An October speech by Pennsylvania delegate James Wilson so pleased Washington that he sent copies to others around the country and asked them to arrange for its distribution and publication in newspapers. He did the same when the Federalist Papers, anonymously written by Hamilton, Madison, and Jay at his suggestion, began appearing. And as he came to identify more completely with the Constitution, Washington increasingly rallied against, railed against its opponents. To alarm the people seems the groundwork of their plan, he complained at one time. Every art that could inflame the passions and touch the interests of men have been essayed. The ignorant have been told that should the proposed government obtain, their land would be taken from them and their property disposed of. Therefore, Washington said of the Anti-Federalists, seems to lie in misrepresentation. In contrast with them, he believed that individual liberty and private property could only survive with the Constitution. I never saw him so keen for anything in my life, one visitor wrote about Washington near the end of 1787. By then, even though five states had ratified the document, formidable opposition remained in the key, indeed the crucial states, of Massachusetts, Virginia, and New York. Knowing their importance, Washington stepped up his involvement. Now, of course, Washington had already been deeply involved in the ratification effort. He had personally endorsed the Constitution to public officials and influential persons in Virginia and elsewhere. He had urged supporters with literary abilities to take up their pens on behalf of the cause, and he had helped to distribute their results. He had never objected when Federalists invoked his name and had dispatched scores of letters of his own supporting ratification. Now to win in Massachusetts, Madison advised Washington that even more be required of him. I have good reason to believe that if the proper occasion offered for an explicit communication of your good wishes for the plan in a letter that can be made public, Madison wrote, that it would be attended with valuable efforts. When Washington then received a note from one of his former officers who had been elected to Massachusetts's ratifying convention, he replied with a public letter stressing the importance of ratification by the Bay States. By the Bay State. Even before this letter arrived, confirmation of Washington's position reached Massachusetts from another source. Now, as I noted, Washington often wrote private letters urging ratification. Key parts of one surfaced in a Virginia paper on December 27 and were reprinted in nine Massachusetts papers during the state's ratifying convention, which began on January 9, 1788. In that letter, Washington wrote of the Constitution, there is no alternative between the adoption of it and anarchy, and clear I am that if another federal convention is attempted, that the sediments of it members will be more discordant and less accommodating than in the last, in fine that they will agree on no general plan. 
Federalists were hungry to hear such words from their icon. By March, some 50 papers had reprinted this letter. I am fully persuaded it is the best that can be obtained at this time, the extract said about the Constitution, and that it is free from many of the imperfections with which it is charged, and that it or disunion is before us to choose from. In one sentence, Washington had encapsulated the Federalist positions. Well, the sides were so closely drawn in in the Massachusetts Convention that Washington's support may have proved decisive. An article in the Massachusetts Gazette suggested as much when it observed, quote, the Federalists should be distinguished hereafter by the name of Washingtonians. Even after that state narrowly ratified the Constitution in February and others followed, the the Constitution remained one state shy of the nine required for ratification as Virginia, New Hampshire, and New York opened their conventions in June. The plot thickens fast, Washington wrote as Virginia's ratifying convention neared. To deal with the threat posed by Patrick Henry's oratory, Washington all but ordered Madison to stand for election to the convention so that he could answer Henry point for point, a task the shy, withdrawn, even nerdy Madison dreaded. When Madison's election looked doubtful without campaigning, Washington ordered him to stump for votes, another unpleasant task. Once the delegates convened, the debate went on for weeks, with neither side gaining a clear advantage. Between letters and newspaper reports, Washington received a blow-by-blow account of the convention then going on in Richmond. Though at home, he might as well have been there. The truth is that not only at the Virginia Convention, but in all the state gatherings, Washington was always present. As James Fletcher notes, a force more powerful for being insubstantial. Washington's role in drafting the Constitution is in the prospects of him becoming president made all the difference. Alluding to Washington near the end of Virginia's convention, one key anti-federalist leader told the assembly, were it not for one great character in America, so many men would not be for this government. In making their arguments, Virginia anti-federalists must have felt that they were shadow boxing with Washington, whose assumed role as president made what they saw as a fatally flawed system appear attractive to many others. On June 27, the evening stage brought news to Mount Vernon that Virginia had ratified the Constitution two days earlier. It passed by a 10-vote margin. Victors and vanquished alike recognized it as being as much a triumph for Washington as for the Constitution. Be assured, Virginia anti-federalist James Monroe said of Washington, his influence carried this government. Well, these momentum events led Washington to reflect on all that Americans had achieved over the past year. And I'll close with this letter. This is what he wrote in August. We have the unequaled privilege of choosing our own political institutions and of improving upon the experiences of mankind in the formation of a confederated government where due energy will not be incompatible with the inalienable rights of freemen. In a world ruled by hereditary monarchs, traditional dogmas, or military might, nothing like America's Republican experiment had ever occurred. 
So Washington wrote, We exhibit at present the novel and astonishing spectacle of a whole people deliberating calmly on what form of government will be most conducive to their happiness and deciding with an unexpected degree of unanimity in favor of a system which they conceive as calculated to answer that purpose. Where before Washington despaired of the country's survival as a free unified republic, now he exuded confidence. When the people, he wrote, when the people shall find themselves secure under an energetic government, when foreign nations shall be disposed to give us equal advantage in commerce from dread of retaliation, and, from, and when everyone under his own vine and fig tree shall begin to taste the fruits of freedom, then all of these blessings, for all of these blessings will surely come, will be referred to the fostering influence of the new constitution. Washington's second, America's second revolution secured the gains won in the first, with Washington again leading the charge. Over the course of 1788, Washington had articulated three main goals for the United States under the Constitution. Respect abroad, prosperity at home, and development westward. Toward those ends, he envisioned a vigorous federal government encouraging trade, manufacturing and agriculture through effective tariffs, sound money, secure property rights, and a non-aligned foreign policy. America under an efficient government, he wrote, will be the most favorable country of any in the world for, peace, for persons of industry and frugality and not be less advantageous to the happiness of the lowest class of people because of the great plenty of unoccupied land. This was Washington's vision for the United States, and as the nation's first president, he went a long way to realizing it. It had required a second revolution, one conceived in the Confederation's failure, as the Confederation's failure became apparent in the mid-1780s, incubated at the Constitutional Convention, and given birth through a tortuous ratification process. Washington was there throughout, just as he had been through the first American Revolution, making him, as Knox had predicted, truly the father of his country. Thank you. Do we have time for some questions? Yes. Oh, go to the mic in the middle. First of all, good evening. Very good presentation. We Thank know you. that um, the father of our country, many of the colonial leaders were Freemasons. Yes. And from your understanding, can you tell us um, how do you f feel that Freemasonry played a part in the formation of our country? Can you cite examples? And, were there, and I'm sure there were a lot of uh, anti-Masons as well. So can you comment on that? Were there any incidences of uh, anti-Federalists based on hatred of Masons, or what do you know? Thank you. Well, it's a good question, and Washington was a Mason. He was an active Mason. Um, and yet, throughout this period, one thing, you can trace him on a lot of things. Many things come out, but the Masonic element really doesn't come out. There, to, to our knowledge, he doesn't record going to Masonic meetings during the Philadelphia Convention. Um, many of the people there were Masons, uh, the Masonic symbol appeared on the back of the seal of the United States, which is, of course, on the $1 bill, um, along with the motto, um, something new under the sun. Uh, but they really don't talk that much about the Masons. They, they, 
it did provide a link for for some key founders, but it's not something uh, they actively talked about. What was a much bigger issue was the Society of Cincinnatius, actually. Yes. Yeah, Dr. Lawson, I have a question. Um, yes. Do you think that the men uh, in the Constitutional Convention, uh, 1787, and the ratifying convention thought that the union, the union that they created was indivisible? And I think about some of the things that happened after that uh, 1780, uh, I mean, 1790s of Kentucky Resolution, right. Calhoun nullification crisis in 1832. Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course, the, I, was, I was just reading South Carolina's Statement of Secession in 1861. So it seems like you know, it was never a settled in the minds of a lot, especially in the South, that uh, this was an indivisible, perpetual union and that secession that they could succeed uh, if they felt like they wanted to. Could you address that, please? It's a, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, it's been much discussed in American history. Uh, there's not a smoking gun either way. What we do know is that in Pennsylvania, um, the ratification was, was the well, technically the second state. thought it was the first state. Delaware snuck through ahead. But the first state of any significance, the first big state to ratify was Pennsylvania. And it was sort of pushed through in an underhanded way uh, before the opponents could organize uh, in a way that they thought was, the, they and many others thought was fundamentally unfair. Indeed, when after the, the extent of the chicanery in Pennsylvania that got it ratified so fast came out, Washington himself and the, the opposition it entailed, Washington himself advised other states, don't do that. Get, let the Everyone talk. Debate it out. This is no way to pass a government. Everybody's got to hear. But the reason why I raised Pennsylvania is there was an immediate major effort to rescind ratification um, because it had been done in such an underhanded fashion. It was very unclear if there was a majority for it. Yet no one, everyone thought they could rescind ratification, but only up until nine states ratified. That is, they thought, they thought it was an open deal until the Constitution went into effect, but that they couldn't do it after it went through, which suggests the idea that this is a contract, and one party, once a contract is agreed to, one party can't leave a contract. And so the general sense at the time was it's a contract. And once it's ratified by nine states, up until that time, a person could withdraw. Pennsylvania could draw. Another state could withdraw. But once it's got the nine states, even the, even the very disgruntled anti-federalist in Pennsylvania said it's done. It's done. We'll make the most of it. We can then, um, it can then we can all agree to undo it or we can elect anti-federalists to Congress. And there was a major effort out of Pennsylvania. Now, they shifted from trying to get Pennsylvania to rescind to having a coordinated effort to get anti-federalists elected to the first Congress so that when they, Congress is going to have to pass a lot of laws to flesh out the Constitution, and they will basically undermine the Constitution 
as legislators. Now that the Congress can do. They think Congress can do that, and they try to do that. Patrick Henry shifts his attention. Patrick Henry leads the opposition. George Clinton leads the opposition in New York. Elderbridge Jerry leads the opposition in Massachusetts. Those were the key states of opponents. um, your attorney general led the opposition in Maryland, though there was never a chance it wasn't going to pass here. Um, uh, and all of them thought, once it was ratified, we can't leave, but we can elect a Congress that will fundamentally change it by not exerting the powers that it has and voluntarily rolling back powers to the states. So I think that back at the time, they thought it was a contract, and they, all had to, they were all in, and it wasn't a ratchet that could come in and out. You're right, Madison and Jefferson later write the, 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 um, the resolutions from Virginia and, 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 and Kentucky. Um, you have the Hartford Convention. You have a lot of examples, but those are always disgruntled people. And so I think at the time, they thought it was a one-way, one-way deal. But they did think, they clearly thought, that they could elect Congress, and they wouldn't have to use all the powers. Um, they could be like the Tea Party now. They could go in there, and they could unravel everything if they wanted to. Um, uh, we'll see what they want to unravel now that they've got power, but, they, but that's the only way to do it. That's what they thought. I think that was the general opinion then, and certainly even a, a, the most radical anti-federalist, and Patrick Henry, thought that same way. But I agree, um, they didn't ever, it's, there's no smoking guns, so of course, once you lose, you, you, you know, other people claim other things, but I think that's where Andrew Jackson, so, you know, comes down so strong, who in theory is a state's rights sir, but he says you just can't leave the union. Yeah. Oh, he said he'd hang Calhoun. Yeah. But yes, shouldn't go too much longer, in case some of you want to buy say, books. What do you, um, what would... Washington think about the stupid gridlock that we've been having. Oh, he hated it because the he, last uh, since Obama or even before with Bush that we can't get anything passed because he got two it. houses that's constantly yeah. battling and the war about their own little. Washington hated partisanship. Yeah, no, he rallied against partisanship <laughs> all the time. He always believed, even though he he vigorously, you know, participated. You saw the politics he was doing, but he thought everybody they shouldn't be in set parties. Sure, people have ideologies, strong ideologies, just like he had them and Patrick Henry. And, but once they're elected, they should each of them not coordinate and vote in a party way, but each should vote their principles. Now, if they oppose something, they should individually vote. But you shouldn't have a party that votes as a... And, and he believed that so strongly, and he rallied so often against organized political parties. Now, it was howling against the wind in that case, I mean, because then ends up Madison and, and two of his closest allies at this time, probably the two closest, were Madison and Hamilton, and they both are the founders of the first two parties on uh, opposing each other. But he would have hated the partisanship. He always did. Um, given that you um, uncovered some new material about Washington, could you say something about um, how you came to write the book and did it take you in directions that you didn't expect, um, like yeah. finding yeah. out this much uh, new about Washington's role? Yes, it took me in new directions. I really didn't know what I'd found. The inspiration of the book came because I've been teaching American history for years at the college level. 
And I teach it in st standard way. I end up writing histories about different things. I've written about the election of 1800. I've written about the Scopes trial. I've written about different things. And of course, that informs that. But I'll use the standard textbooks. David Kennedy is probably the most popular. And you end up spending, when you're doing the first half of American history, you end up spending a couple days on the, a couple, three days on the revolution. And it's all about, Washington's all over the place. There are other people, Nathaniel Green and others. But Washington's the key focus. And then you spend a couple days talking about the collapse of the Confederation. And you don't hear, mention a word about George Washington, even though you know at the end of the revolution, he is the most famous person in America. With Franklin, those are the only true national celebrities. Everybody else, like an Adams or a Jefferson, are really local. Um, this is good as, as, and they were probably right at the next level, um, along with a few others, Nathaniel Green, uh, Henry Knox, maybe. Um, but Washington and, and Franklin were the only true national celebrities, most famous person in the world. Um, but you don't hear a word about him. And then you get to his presidency and you hear a couple days about the first federal administration. You hear all about Washington. And I just kept thinking and says, what was he doing during that period? While the whole country was going to hell in a handbasket, was he just farming? I mean, it just doesn't seem characteristic. And so I just decided, and I didn't know exactly what I'd find. I thought it might just be an article. But I thought I'd just try to figure out exactly what Washington was doing and thinking during those periods. And when you read the standard biographies, what they do is they are so intense, they talk about the revolution, and then they have them go home. And I'm talking Ron Chernow's great single-volume one or the multi-volume ones like by Flexner or, or uh, Freeman, um, and they talk about him as a farmer. Now, he was a farmer. He was a, very good, he was a very imaginative farmer. He was a scientific farmer. He had crop rotation. He instituted new crops in his land. He, he built the largest whiskey distillery in the New World. He did a lot of new things, new fertilizing techniques. He's always reading farming magazines. He's, he's writing articles for British farming magazines, in fact. So he was a farmer. There are things to talk about. Um, but they... But, and I saw that in it, but when I, I just decided, well, let's, so I read all of his letters during that period, and of course, there are lots of them. We find out he's writing all the time to all the nationalists around the country saying, what can we do? How can we save this place? He's writing to them, he's writing two, three, four, five, six, eight letters a day, often the exact same letters sending them off to different governors. You know, he, he's just writing the same letter because, you know, making the same points. So we have an enormous amount of letters. We've got his diaries. You've got, you've got lodge, his, his farm records. Um, all these national leaders were coming to Mount Vernon all the time. Madison was probably spending two or three. He wasn't married then yet. He, hasn't married. he really was a nerdy fellow. He just was a political wonk. Um, and he, you know, he would spend two or three months a year during that time living at Mount Vernon. Um, talking politics and doing politics. And I, it's just, sure, he was a farmer, but he was spending most of his time on national concerns. He becomes president of the canal company, building the canal west. He goes west to his properties. And so I just tried to uncover all the things he was doing and piece together what, what he was doing during this period. And I find out, well, my conclusion was that everybody knows, there's a famous book by Flexioner, the uh, uh, the Indispensable Man, and it's about Washington, his service in the Revolution, and he's indispensable as the first president. Well, I came to the conclusion he was indispensable throughout. And when I looked at actual terms in the Constitution, the general reading is that 
Madison's the architect of the Constitution, and Washington's just sitting up there in the front like a cipher there, sort of sitting up front like a wax figure doing practically nothing. And I, when I started piecing together how he got involved in all the deals and all the compromises and how he was involved in all the meetings he had and all these deals, I just came to the conclusion that if Was- Madison was the architect of the Constitution, then George Washington was his general contractor. And any of you who have ever built a house or added to it knows that you might have an architect to draw a plan, but the general contractor is the one who gets things done, and that was Washington's role. So that's how I ended up looking into it and finding all this material. And so far, I've had some reviews um, uh, in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and history journals that are coming out, and various comments, and no one's disagreed. Everyone, most of them say, Wow, we never knew he was that good a politician. We never knew he was doing all that stuff. So, so far, the scholarship I've come up with has, has held water. I keep waiting, but I sent it off to the top people, the head of the, federal, head of the first federal election papers and all these, and before I sent it out all to all these drafts, and they all said, wow, yeah, when you line it up all together like that, we just sort of missed it. So that's how I ended up with it. We probably should just maybe do one more question. Yes. Any other question? One more uh, question? One more. Oh, there it is. Um, yeah, I mean, George Washington um, I mean, cut the army together. As you said, they weren't paid for three years. His generals were always plotting muni- uh, uh, mutinies. Um, and then he brings the country. What was there about George Washington that made yeah. him such a compelling, such a... I love that thing about the mutiny, the most famous, and I write about it at length in my book, The Newburgh Conspiracy, when they were going to rise up in mutiny and take over the country, and he puts it down, and they had me up at Newburgh, up in New York, um, to give a talk, and and they, to show how people thought at the time, I didn't know this, where he gave this talk, where he put down the mutiny that was going to take over and overthrow the country and have a military a coup right at the end of the revolution, there's a big column, bit of that big column that was built in the early, very early 1800s. And on the column in Newburgh, it says, birthplace of the republic. Now, I'd never thought of that. You think birthplace of the republic would be Constitution Hall, maybe Nathaniel Hall in Boston. But they think it was him putting down the Newburgh conspiracy, the birthplace of the republic, it says. So um, it was a variety of factors. He was a man, it took a combination, I think. I'm not quite sure. He was a remarkable man. He wasn't probably the brightest person who ever walked the face of the earth. Um, you know, he had people around him who were, like Hamilton was very bright, Madison was brilliant. Of course, Ben Franklin was maybe the smartest man who ever lived. Um, he had great stature. He was a big man. He, he listened. He listened to people. He was very comfortable in himself, his own skin. He knew who he was. He surrounded himself with the best people. He was always willing to surround himself with the best people, the Hamiltons, the Madisons. I mean, Doris Carnes Goodwin talks about the team of rivals for Lincoln with her cabinet she puts together. That's nothing compared to the cabinet that Washington put together to put Jefferson and Hamilton in the same cabinet and add, add Knox and Randolph and 
Adams. I mean, there is a team of rivals. Uh, Madison is basically the effective prime minister of the country. These were, there was a team of rivals, but he was willing to surround himself. He always listened. He was a wonderful conversationalist. He wasn't a great speaker because he had those false teeth, but he was a wonderful one-on-one conversationalist. People loved to talk to him. He was a storyteller. He was a wonderful conversationalist. The ladies loved him. He danced with every, every woman wanted to dance with him. He would go to a ball, and he'd be the last to go home. He'd dance with every woman. He danced with every woman who wanted to dance with him. And he loved to dance. Um, and he loved to talk with the, he was a great conversationalist. Um, and he, he had thought a lot about who he was. And early in his life, he decided what he cared most about. And he, and I think he was right on that. He, he was always convinced of two, he became convinced of two things. And, and, and this, I'll close with that, that he was a realist. Jefferson was an idealist. Jefferson thought, oh, liberty, we're fighting for liberty, equality, fraternity. Washington often during the revolution said, these people, and, you know, said, you're men, they're fighting and dying for liberty. They're not fighting and dying for liberty. All my men, all of us, people are only motivated for one thing, self-interest. And these soldiers think that their life and their children's lives We'll be better if we're free, you know, if we're independent, if we're our own country. And he believed that. And so he thought about himself. And he, he made a lot of money, but he, he didn't really care about wealth. And he never cared about power. What he wanted, and he was very frank about this, and even in a, in a youth he'd always say, what I want is to be famous. And later on he changed that a little bit, but it's the same thing. I want to leave a legacy. And he believed in Republican virtue. He thought there had ne- he, he believed, as all the others believed, that there had never been a republic, a continental republic in the world. I mean, it's a, you, you know, maybe Republican Rome, maybe the Greek city-states, the Swiss cantons were a little thing. But with this Enlightenment thinking that we should be, his phrase he always used, Lincoln later added to it, but he always used, what we have is a government of the people. He never added the other parts, but a government of the people where people choose the government and then people go back to it. And he wanted to create that. And he believed sincerely that if it worked in America, it would be a model for the whole world. He said that often. He said that in his inaugural address. And he would then, that would be his legacy, the greatest legacy of anyone ever. And so he wanted that legacy to live on. Now, one reason he didn't want to come up after the war is he'd secured that during the revolution. He was the most famous person in the world. When George, Wash- when George III later goes insane in the 1780s, he, th- he goes raving around, you know, on all fours and foaming at the mouth. He thought he was George Washington. Imagine the ego when that gets back to Washington, that King George, the strongest man in the world, thinks he's George Washington. So he ha- he, that's the sort of person he is. And he's afraid if he comes out of the revolution, if it all fails, he'll lose his legacy. He'll lose his... But he knows that if he doesn't come out and the country goes to hell in a handbasket and we break up into separate unions and... Patrick Henry, we now know as a fact, but at that time, Washington thought what Patrick Henry is doing is trying to pull out a group of slave states in the South that will be a separate country. And Vermont's leaving. The West is going to be lost. He's convinced the danger is that England and France will split up the pieces. If this whole experiment 
And he keeps saying, we've become a laughingstock of Europe. You see that in his letters. That means a lot to him. He writes in his letters, we, during this period, we have become a laughingstock of Europe. Well, if you want a legacy, that's what you don't want. But he knows that if it all falls apart, everything he did and everything his men died for will just be a footnote in history. Nobody will remember it. So I think that's the sort of character he had, and that's the sort of values he had. And he understood that people only ask about act about self-interest. So what we've got to convince the majority of the people in nine states is that a strong central government, rather than the advantages they get in their little petty little states, is ultimately in their self-interest. And it's convincing people that there's in the self-interest, not fighting for ideals, but convincing them what's in their self-interest, I think is what that realism made it work. So those are the characteristics, the type of leadership, the type of person Washington was. So he listened, he, he had a long-term vision, but he was always willing to compromise on the means. I mean, tremendous compromises in Philadelphia, like the big state, small state, the great compromise, the three-fifths compromise, all these compromises. Um, the way he deals throughout the war, he'd been a political general, willing to listen, willing to compromise, have these long-term vision, have this goal, and he didn't want wealth or power for himself. So those traits mixed together and combined together created a special sort of person that was the right person for the right time. And we were lucky to have him, in my opinion. Thank you. Thank you.